Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Heartman Report podcast is brought to you in part today by Riduzone. If you're looking to lose weight this season, I strongly suggest you give non-prescription Riduzone a try. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive up to 65% off plus free shipping. Go to Riduzone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. R-I-D-U-Zone.com. Riduzone.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Program, broadcasting on commercial radio stations from coast to coast on Sirius XM all across the North American continent, on Pacifica stations across America, Europe, and Africa, on American Forces Radio, and every U.S. military base in the world, and your electronic device via TuneIn, Progressive Voices, Tom Hartman app, and simulcast as television via Free Speech TV Network on Dish Network, DirecTV, and cable systems all over the country. Uh, Sanders and Warren are polling about 40% of the total Democratic vote right now, and they're both solid progressive candidates who are refusing to take corporate money. All of the other top-tier Democratic candidates are aggressively taking corporate money and billionaire money. And so there is a kind of a clear delineation. Just in advance of the debates, Elizabeth Warren rolled out an extraordinary program, a very aggressive program, to expand Social Security. As you know, right now, if you earn $130,000 a year or less, 100% of your income, you have to pay social security taxes on. Even your social security income, of all things, I believe. I haven't gotten social security income up to this point, so I, I'm not sure, although I'm, I'm going to be getting it soon. But in any case, I know that you pay income tax on social security income. But, but setting that aside, for people under 65, 100% of your income, you have to pay, if you're making $130,000 a year or less, you have to pay Social Security taxes on. And above that, you don't have to pay a penny on. So right now, the total is around 12%. It's a little over 12%. 12.4% is the total. Half of that is paid for by your employer. Half of that is paid for by you. So you're paying you know, 6.2% uh, tax to, into Social Security. So we're paying basically a 12% tax on Social Security. So if you make under $130,000, you're paying 12% tax. But if you make $260,000, you're only paying a 6% tax. If you make $520,000, you're only paying a 3% tax. If you make a million dollars a year, you're paying a 1.5% tax. If you make $10 million a year, you're paying a 0.15% tax. 
you know, this quick back of the envelope doing it in my head math, but I think it's pretty close. And there's a lot of us for a long time who've been saying, that's crazy. Why should Charles Koch pay less income tax than I do or Sean does or Nate does or anybody else? I mean, why is that? This doesn't make any sense. So, you know, pay less than you do. So Elizabeth Warren is saying, let's do two things. Number one, let's raise that cap. Now she's starting at 250,000. So people making between 130 and 250,000 still will no longer pay social security taxes in that range. But above 250,000, not only will you pay social security tax, but you'll pay it at 14% rather than 12%. It's actually 14 and change. Um, it's 14.8% uh, instead of 12.4%. If you're making more than a quarter million dollars a year, and what's she going to do with that money? She's going to give everybody on Social Security an immediate $200 a month raise, average of $200 a month. And this is, by the way, going to reduce the federal budget deficit by a trillion dollars over the next decade. And it will make Social Security viable forever. And perhaps most importantly, and these are the statistics that I did not learn until I got an email from the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, Adam Green and Stephanie Taylor, the bold progressives. I didn't see it in the Washington Post piece. I didn't see it in the New York Times piece. Maybe it's in some of these pieces. But basically, if Elizabeth Warren's plan is put into law, and Bernie has a similar plan, by the way, and has campaigned on it for years and years. If this plan is put into law, immediately almost 5 million seniors get lifted out of poverty, which would cut the senior poverty rate by 68%. In addition to reducing our budget deficit by over a trillion dollars over the next decade, as I, as I pointed out which is, you know, a good thing. It's definitely not a bad thing. And Elizabeth Warren also wants people who earn their, in quotes, earn their income by sitting on their butts around the pool waiting for the dividend check to arrive. You know, the Paris Hiltons of the world, the trust fund babies. You know, they make their money by investing money. Elizabeth Warren wants them to start paying taxes on that investment money. Right now they pay a, an income tax on it, although it's a much, much lower rate than you and I pay as working people this capital gains tax, they pay a much lower rate, but there's no social security tax for people like the billionaires who live on their investments. They pay no social security tax at all. So she wants to start applying that to, to uh, that kind of income, which I think is a good thing. I think it's a very good thing. This is frankly, I think, a very, very big issue. Stuart Varney, Fox's Stuart Varney has warned, <laughs> warned, Elizabeth Warren, you're going to go after rich people? Really? He's quite upset about this, apparently. But here's the simple reality. The bottom 80% of Americans, at the time that Reagan started his policies, the bottom 80% of Americans owned a little over 20% of all the wealth in America. Now it's about 12%. The top 1% of Americans, when Reagan's policy started, owned about 22% of America's wealth. Now it's about 40%. That should tell you everything you need to know. The headline over at Bloomberg was, uh, is titled, Richest Could Lose Hundreds of Billions of Dollars Under Warren's Wealth Tax. How about hundreds of billions of dollars would strengthen the American economy? How about, I mean, it's... 
And by the way, their article then goes into this, uh, the, the new uh, Thomas Piketty, who came out with Capital in the 21st century some years ago that sold millions of copies, the French edition of Capital and Ideology. This is his sequel, 1,200 pages. It comes out today in French. But anyhow, he says, the time has come to exit this phase of making property sacred, to go beyond capitalism. He argues that no shareholder should be able to have more than 10% voting rights, even if, like Mark Zuckerberg, they own the majority of the stock or a large chunk of the stock. His inheritance for all would grant all French citizens a lump sum of $132,000 when they reach the age of 25. And he basically wants to have a wealth tax that starts at one-tenth of one percent when you have wealth of 200,000 euros, about $220,000, but goes up to 90% on billionaires. What do you think of that? Yeah, Stuart Varney blasts Elizabeth Warren for sharing profits. This is, this is Stuart Varney on Fox & Friends. He said, this is the socialist takeover of American business. Jim Cramer freaked out. This is on CNBC. He says, she needs to be stopped. Now, both of these guys are multimillionaires, right? And they're probably both pulling at least a million dollar salary for what they do. Typically, if you see somebody on commercial television, their starting salaries run around a million dollars a year and go up from there. Fox Business reporter Charles Gasparino wrote an article for the New York Post, which Fox and Friends cited in advance of the Varney se segment, saying basically the same thing. Colby Halsep wrote a great piece about this over at Mediaite. Varney said, under Warren's plans, now this is not a, a quote, this is just a, a paraphrase. Under Warren's plans, profits would no longer go to shareholders. It would drive down stock prices and cut the value of retirement accounts. Uh, right. Well, if the stock market goes down, I think the average person is perfectly capable of bailing their 401k out of the stock market. Although, you know, none of us want to see another crash. I think that that's going to be inevitable given what the Republicans are up to. And I got to tell you about what the CFTC is doing. Sunday is the anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers. You know, it collapsed in 2008 and it led to the entire collapse of the entire financial system. Not because Lehman Brothers was so critical, but because the entire system was basically a house of cards. And here's what's amazing. The CFTC is meeting on Monday, the day after the anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers, to finalize a revision to the Volcker Rule, basically saying that once again, banks can start gambling with their own money. And I mean, this is the banks have been have been, you know, lobbying for this forever. This is seriously dangerous stuff. Donald Trump has announced on Twitter that he was going to delay for two weeks imposing increased tariffs on Chinese goods worth $250 billion. I smell a rat. I think that what's going on here is that Donald Trump has created a drag on the market and the economy with his trade war with China. He knew this would happen. I mean, it was entirely predictable. And that the reason that he didn't try to work this through Congress, in addition to the fact that 
they probably wouldn't have gone along with it because the Republicans generally are not protectionists. Republicans like the ability of a big corporation to offshore jobs to China. This was, this was Ronald Reagan's idea. You know, NAFTA was Ronald Reagan's idea. And it got finalized during the George H.W. Bush administration. Now, it was signed by Bill Clinton. He gets blamed for it, but it was Reagan and Bush who put the thing together. So Republicans generally like free trade. But in any case, I think that what Trump is up to here is damage the economy, weaken the economy, while making the point about China trade, which has traditionally been a Democratic talking point. Sherrod Brown's been talking about this forever. Bernie Sanders, for goodness sake, has been talking about this forever on this program. Um, you know, that we need to have a, uh, essentially a protectionist trade policy. I totally agree with that. So these had, this has been the Democratic position forever. The Republican position has been free trade is wonderful. It helps everybody. And this has pretty much always been the case. So I think that what Trump is doing by postponing the, the tariffs, and China now may be postponing or has, I think they just announced that they're going to postpone their tariffs on, some of their tariffs on U.S. goods as well that he creates a crisis, it softens the stock market and the economy. And then sometime in the next six months, just in time for the election, he's going to work out a deal, in quotes, with China, which just he's just going to back off a little bit. China will back off a little bit. The markets will rebound. The stock market will go up. Everybody will think, hey, good times, right? It's wonderful now. And that will help Donald Trump get reelected. That is how I'm seeing this thing play out. I think it's, uh, you know, to a large extent, a phony baloney thing to start with. Trump was supposed to increase existing tariffs on a $250 billion, a quarter trillion dollars worth of goods, Chinese goods in 25 to 30% on October 1st, three weeks from now, roughly. And now he said, well, we'll take it to October 15. You know, according to his most recent tweet, I smell a rat. Louise was Googling uh, CBD oil last night and discovered that there's a whole bunch of new research into all kinds of other benefits. I don't want to make health claims here, so I'll let you do the research yourself, but it's pretty amazing. I've been using New Leaf Natural CBD oil for quite some time now, and I love it. CBD oil is not intoxicating, so it's ideal for people who don't want to get high, but they do want the health benefits of cannabinoids. And it's non-toxic and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals, NU Leaf Naturals. It's the highest quality CBD oil in the market, 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown right here in the USA. The only ingredient is hemp, so the product is legal and it remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's n-u-leafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to n-u-leafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman here with you. We've been talking about Elizabeth Warren's new plan for Social Security and wealth taxes and the Republicans freaking out about this and the rest of the two-inch thick stack of news that I've got to get to today. But first, I wanted to check in with Professor Richard Wolff. He is the economist, the co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author most recently of Understanding Marxism, democracyatwork.info website is there, as well as rdwolf, with two Fs, dot com, his more personal website. You can tweet him at profwolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. Uh, Dr. Wolf, welcome back to the program. 
Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. It is always so great to have you. So I read in the Financial Times that China is lowering the reserve requirement for their banks. And I believe that I've heard that the Trump administration is also trying to roll back reserve requirements on banks. And then on top of that, yesterday I was reading, I think it was in the Financial Times, how they want to radically roll back the little tiny reserve requirements that Fannie and Freddie have. Apparently Fannie and Freddie are sitting on something like $6 billion to secure a trillion dollars worth of mortgages, some mind-boggling amounts of numbers. I don't think most Americans even know what a reserve requirement is or what this means. And you're so good at translating this econ speak into English. Could you tell us what's going on here and how it ties into the crash of 2008? Will do, will do. Okay, let's begin with what banks basically do. We, the people and businesses, put money into the bank for safekeeping, for record keeping, and all the rest to make our payments. Normally, the banks give us little or nothing for doing so. But then they take the money we deposit and lend it out. Take the most extreme example, we these days put money into a bank, get literally half of 1%, 1%, and the bank turns around and lends that money out to people who use credit cards, charging them in the neighborhood of 16, 17, 18, or more percent. In short, how banks make a big part of their money is by getting us to give them deposits on which they pay a little and then turning around and lending that money out at interest rates that earn them a lot with our money. And the problem has been that banks, who love this arrangement for reasons that should be obvious, have a tendency to lend out pretty nearly every nickel we give them, because obviously the more of our money they lend out, the fatter the profit they take home. The big problem here is, if for any reason a large number of us want our deposits back, which after all, they're ours and we have every right to them, the bank would not be able to give them back to us because they've lent them out. And that has led periodically to what used to be called, honestly, a bank panic. Because people panicked realizing that they might get to the bank and be told that their deposits could not be and might not ever be returned to them. In the face of this greedy behavior by banks, the government passed a law requiring reserves to be held by banks. The reserve requirement is that law. It says, for example, that for every dollar deposited in a bank, the bank has to keep 20 cents or 18 cents or some percentage in that neighborhood, which it cannot lend out, which it has to keep as a kind of insurance policy that in the event depositors want their money back, they will not be in a position of having to say no, causing a panic, causing the whole economy to totter and collapse. But what that means is every bank has a big bunch of money, the money that they are not allowed to lend out because of this insurance for depositors. And it's very tempting for a government that wants to stimulate the economy to lower the reserve requirement, basically telling every bank, 
you don't have to keep whatever we were telling you you had to, say 20%. We're lowering it to 15%, which means $5 for every 100 that you used to keep as a reserve, you are now free to lend. And the point of that is to get every bank to begin beating the bushes to get that money into the hands of interest-paying borrowers and thereby stimulate the economy. That's what China is doing, and a desperate Mr. Trump, worried about a recession between now and re-election time in November 2020, is trying to do everything he can, lower interest rates. He even proposed yesterday negative interest rates, but cutting reserve requirements is typically a more massive kind of stimulus because it isn't the government doing something, it's literally the government allowing every bank, large and small, to do that. Now, we know that uh, Donald Trump has borrowed over a billion dollars and, and from what little we have of his financials, it looks like he's sitting on between three and four hundred million dollars in loans just from Deutsche Bank right now. So if the interest rate, if the Fed fund rates go to zero from where they are right now, doesn't that mean that suddenly Donald Trump doesn't have to pay millions of dollars a year in interest? Absolutely. He will do what we call refinance. He will borrow money at zero interest. Or if he could really engineer this game, he could borrow at a negative interest rate, which means the bank pays him to be a borrower. That's what negative interest rates mean. He could borrow money at little or no interest, use it to pay off the loans he now has, which are carrying high interest, and it would be a big improvement for his finances and for everybody else who might do that. Of course, if you lower reserve requirements and you lower interest rates, you are inviting every speculator in the world to see an opportunity because money is now so cheap to borrow or if it goes to negative, banks will pay you to borrow. So any wild harebrained scheme you might have been playing with is now a more attractive opportunity than it even was before. So if we're worried that the kind of crash from irresponsible speculation that we had in 2008 is down the road, cutting interest rates, particularly to negative, and lowering reserve requirements only stimulates even more speculation and the inevitable bursting of that bubble down the road. But Mr. Trump and the Republicans clearly don't care. They are like a King Louis XVI in France. They're going to do what's necessary, hope to get reelected, and then when the crash comes, we will hear them say, as Louis XVI did, after me comes the deluge, but meanwhile, I'm going to have the ride of my life. Yeah. Yeah, remarkable. Now, to those reserve requirements, so the banks are sitting on hundreds of billions of dollars in reserve. That's um, right. That's right. And there's this thing called proprietary trading, where the banks use, quote, their own money to gamble in the stock market. And 
I understand that at various times we've had laws that say you can't use an A is when we say their own money. Is that their profits that they're gambling or are they gambling the reserve money, which is basically our money? And, you know, I know that the laws have changed on this numerous times since the 1920s. What has happened? How has it gone back and forth? Where are we at right now? We got about two and a half minutes till we hit a hard break. Okay, doc. In the Great Depression, it was clear that one of the crazy things going on was that the banks were using the depositors' money to make all of these speculative investments. Again, remember, they profit if they make a good investment, and they have virtually no expense because we give them our deposits at little or nothing. So they are very tempted to make these speculative investments, and they did it with our money. One of the reforms that came out of the Great Depression was to create a wall. It was called the Glass-Steagall Act, and it basically said the bank cannot use depositors' money for speculative or long-term or risky investments. If the bank wants to do those investments, it either has to use the money of the people who started the bank, that's called the bank capital, or the accumulated profits, as you just mentioned, or the bank can go into the world of high finance and borrow money from investors, making it crystal clear and transparent that they are going to speculate with the investor's money, but not with the depositor's money. When Bill Clinton signed the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act in the 1990s, that wall of separation came down. Banks had been evading it for all the usual reasons, mainly to make more profits. We allow our monetary system to be controlled by people whose first priority is their own profit. And so they weaken the law, they evade the law, they amend the law. And with Mr. Clinton, they were able to basically repeal it. We are back to square one. Creative accounting allows banks to mix different kinds of money for all kinds of investments. That's what they have teams of lawyers, accountants, and economists like me to do. And they're always incentivized because in the capitalist system we live in, what they pay us for the money we give them is so much less than what they can get by speculating that they would have to be every day is Sunday in church kinds of people not to take advantage of that and thereby put the entire financial system at risk. So where are we at right now? Are they speculating with the reserve funds? Absolutely. They are taking unbelievable chances because it's virtually costless for them to do so. Wow. If they make a bad speculative investment, a really bad one, they declare bankruptcy. End of conversation. They are getting money from us. As people who are listening to this program or watching it know they get our deposits for next to nothing. So it's cheap money, and they are incentivized to go out and try to make a killing with it, and that's what they're doing. And this is what Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are going after them on, is it not? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a very, very dangerous thing that has upended our economy many times. Amen. Professor Richard Wolf, democracyatwork.info, rdwolf.com. Thank you, Dr. Wolf. Okie doke, glad to do so. Great Take talking care. with you. Guys, remember the days when you were always ready to go? Now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Listen up. Blue Chew, that's blue like the color. Blue Chew brings you the first chewable 
with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach, and since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill, so you can be ready whenever an opportunity arises. If you could benefit from extra function and more confidence where it counts, Blue Chew is the fast and easy way to enhance your performance. Blue Chew is prescribed online and ships straight to your door in a discreet package, so no in-person doctor visits, no waiting in the pharmacy, and best of all, no more awkwardness. Made in the USA, and since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, they're cheaper than a pharmacy. Right now, we've got a special deal for our podcast subscribers. Uh, visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free when you use our special code TOM. Right now, we've got a special deal for podcast listeners. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free when you use our special promo code TOM, T-H-O-M. Just pay $5 in shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com, promo code TOM, to try it free. BlueChew is the better, cheaper, faster choice, and we thank them for sponsoring the Hartman Report. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Patricia in Middletown, Virginia. Hey, Patricia, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Well, I was just wondering about the uh, Social Security $130,000 cap mm -hmm. on Social Security. I mean, do they get Social Security? Who's they? I mean, are they allowed to draw? You're talking about very, very rich people? No, the $130,000. If they don't have to pay ta taxes, uh, Social Security taxes at $130,000, right. then are, yes. are they able to draw? Yes, if somebody earns over $130,000 and they no longer pay Social Security taxes on their income over that $130,000. In other words, you pay that you know 12.5% basically from zero up to $130,000. After $130,000, you pay nothing into Social Security. And yes, everybody in America qualifies for Social Security. Charles Koch is probably taking Social Security. And we want it that way, by the way, because the day that we start saying, no, wait a minute, only some people can get uh, Social Security is the day it goes from being an entitlement program. In other words, it's everybody in America as a citizen of the United States is entitled to this benefit. It goes from being an entitlement program to being a welfare program. And you know what happens to welfare programs. Even Democrats cut them. Bill Clinton was famously proud of saying, you know, we have ended welfare as we know it in the United States. So as soon as you start means testing something, that is saying, you know, if you have if means beyond a certain level, if you're very wealthy, you don't qualify for something. As soon as you start doing that, you are putting the entire program at risk. Well, you know, it, it brings back something. You know, my grandma was born in 1898. Wow. And she, bless her heart, she never worked, but my granddaddy did. But he never worked on what they call public works. Mm -hmm. And so... Guess how much money she got from Social Security? I don't know. <laughs> when Granddaddy died, thirty dollars a month. Well, back in the what, thirties, forties? Nineteen seventy. Oh, nineteen seventy. Wow, you couldn't live on thirty dollars a month in nineteen seventy. That's yeah, no yeah. kidding. Yeah. Because I remember her. It makes me cry. I remember her giving my dad seven dollars. For a pair of shoes and said, is this enough? And he said, yeah, that's enough. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I've become real conscious of since uh, I just went in and applied for Social Security myself, and I think next month I'm going to begin taking it, 
I've had a lot of real high income years in my life. I've had a lot of years where I made absolutely nothing for years at a time also as I was starting businesses. But once they got off, got going, I had some pretty high incomes. And so I'm, I'm getting like close to three grand a month from Social Security. I know that you know my mother-in-law is something like $800 a month. I think that's wrong. I don't think that Social Security payments should be based on how much you made during your life. I think everybody should be getting the same and that it should be a that's good, healthy right. amount. I believe that. Yeah. So we need to oh, really I'm rethink getting, this. I like 1600 Yeah. And there I worked go. many years. There you go. Patricia, thank you. Judy in Duncan, Oklahoma. Hey, Judy, what's on your mind today? Well, I think you just submitted my vote. For Elizabeth Warren, I'm thrilled that she wants to raise the cap on Social Security deductions. Why don't we take it all off, not have a cap, and then we could reduce the percentage that everybody has to pay? I agree. I agree. Although that that uh, 130,000 to 250,000, uh, I believe that that's being untouched right now by politicians on the on the Democratic side. I mean, the Republicans, uh, you know, they they just want to keep the cap where it is. But I think that the reason well, that, sure. the, that the Democrats are, are hanging on to that is they don't want to lose the suburban upper middle class white vote, basically. And so they don't want to be perceived as the ones who are raising taxes on. I mean, most people pay taxes as a family. And, you know, you get a couple of people who are both making you know, a couple, you know, a couple of lawyers or a lawyer and a doctor or somebody who works in investment banking or whatever, you know, the the not the ownership class, not the millionaires and billionaires, but, the you know, the the it's like the top five percent, you know, there maybe maybe even the top 10 or 15 percent um, in that income category. It's skewing heavily Democratic right now, and they don't want to raise taxes on those folks. But I, your point is well taken, Judy, and I completely agree. And and, of course, the Republicans are going to act, characterize this and perhaps accurately as the camel's nose under the tent, you know, that this is the beginning of it. But, but yeah, I think what Elizabeth Warren is proposing is strong, strong stuff, and I think it's a really good thing. Judy, thank you for the call. Nancy in Oregon, Illinois. Hey, Nancy, what's up? I am, it's basically on that same subject, the, the person you talked about at Fox that was all upset because... Yeah, Stuart Varney. Yeah, that we're going to tax the wealthy and all that takes money away from the wealthy. And Trump has been taking food stamps away from the poor for a long time, making them more and more poor. Everybody's been doing that. Yep. And where's his outrage about that? You know, yeah. is it only the wealthy that matters? Do they need more and more money and everybody else needs to go oh, hungry? Yeah, it's, it's pretty mind-boggling, Nancy. Uh, <laughs> it really and truly is. And, uh, the, you know, the, yes, the, the simple answer. Uh, Stuart Varney basically was saying, oh, my God, this is the end of capitalism. Capitalism was doing just fine up until 1967 when the top tax rate was 91%. Capitalism did just fine from 1967 until 1983 when the top tax rate was 74%. Um, you know, what we've had since since Reagan dropped the top tax rate from 74 percent, which LBJ had dropped it to, uh, from 74 percent down to 25 percent. Now it's floated back up a little bit since then. You know, it's it's around 32 percent, I think, right now. But but uh, it, what what capitalism has been doing since that top tax rate of 74 percent dropped through the 50 percent threshold, which is the threshold necessary to maintain a middle class, is that the middle class has been collapsing. And, you know, and capitalism, 
Capitalism was doing fine in the 1950s. In fact, it was doing better than it is now. It was doing fine in the 1960s. In fact, it was doing better than it is now. It was doing fine in the 1970s, better than it is now, at least for the middle class. But it was doing fine for rich people, too, back then. But now all of the gains are going to the top 1%. The top one-tenth of 1% owns more wealth than the bottom 80% in America right now. And Elizabeth Warren is coming along and saying there's something, you know, it's time to do something about this. Bernie Sanders, by the way, is also saying it's time to do something about this. Yeah, what we need is socialism, which is for the people. That's for the people. And that's what we need. You know, if you call it democratic socialism, Nancy, I completely agree with you. Although I can, I guarantee you, the Democrats are going to run away from that word and the Republicans are going to constantly use that word. And that's going to be probably the main pivot point for the election of 2020. Um, I call it I call it social capitalism, where the owners are the workers. Yeah. That that would be the best kind of capitalism I could think of. Yeah, social capitalism. I like that. Nancy, thank you. Deborah in Denver, Colorado. Hey, Deborah, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thank you for all you do. We greatly appreciate you. I have uh, uh, just a couple of thoughts I want to get out there, and um, so I don't lose my train of thought. Mm-hmm. First, I just want to respond to Bill Maher's show. Uh, he mentioned that. He doesn't like the Democrats have spineless people in office. Well, on the other hand, this morning on on, uh, Joe Scarborough's show on Morning Joe, he was saying that Elizabeth Warren scared him and that if she becomes the nominee, that Donald Trump gets reelected, which I don't believe for a second. That seems to be. I don't believe that either. This is the message that is being spread far and wide, and particularly in high end Hollywood fundraising circles by not just Joe Biden, by several of the, actually the only two Democratic candidates who are refusing to take money from very, very rich people and from corporations are Sanders and Warren. And so, you and know, that's the, fine. Yeah, but the other <laughs> candidates are trashing them for it and, and saying, oh my God, right. look out, they're socialists. And he, he brought Delaney on his show and completely lied and said that, uh, that getting away from the middle is going to cost us. And then he mentioned Al Gore. Well, Al Gore actually won. And he mentioned uh, Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was was not for uh, reaching the middle. Yeah. And uh, he... Well, well, Deborah, well, let let's... You know, I don't thought. think Bill Maher lied. I think he, he is telling what he not believes Maher, to be Delaney. true. Oh, Delaney. Delaney. Yeah, John, I yeah. mentioned Delaney. Yeah. He mentioned that going to the middle is what cost the Democrats, and uh, that's just not true. It's, I think that what, what cost the Democrats is when the Clintons brought it to the, to the middle, because then we lost all the working people. Yeah. Uh, let, me, let me just finish out my thought. I just want to say that with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, their polls together be anybody. And I just hope that if Elizabeth wins or Bernie wins, that they don't make the same mistake that Hillary did. And that is to exclude uh, Bernie, because if she would have kept him, she would have won. The second thing I want to say briefly, there is nothing more impossible and more radical and something that could have scared the public is when John F. Kennedy said, we're going to the moon and you have to get it done by such and such date. Right. Within 10 years. Within a decade Within is what he years, said. Yeah. There's nothing more impossible than that. So why can't the um, why can't they accept the fact that the country needs change? And why are they so afraid of it? We have to because uh, first of all, Biden he's going to win the states that are going to vote Republican anyway. Mm-hmm. So you really can't count that. And that's what Hillary made her mistake is she won all of the states that weren't going to vote Democrat anyway. Mm-hmm. So. 
I, I think that, that by them saying that Biden is the best choice, well, to me, he hasn't really said anything of how he's going to fix anything. And I just don't see any change with him. The country is broken. The biblical reference for a house divided against itself will not stand. Right. And Jesus Christ himself said this. We're so polarized. If we have um, Biden come in, nothing will get changed. Nothing will get fixed. Well, my concern, I, you know, I think that uh, the times have changed, and I'm guessing that if Joe Biden is elected, that he's going to adopt somewhat more progressive positions. My, my concern is that young people, progressives, progressive boomers, you know, the, the Gen X and Y and, uh, you know, ERs who have huge amounts of student debt, they're not going to show up to vote if Joe Biden is the nominee. I mean, he was the author of the mm-hmm. bankruptcy bill that put them in that student debt. And, you know, that's my concern. On the other hand, if he becomes this party's nominee, I'm going to do everything I can to get him elected. I think we all need to. But I'm just very, very concerned that it's not that he will not energize the base the way that Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders would. Deborah, thank you for the call. Steve in Yorba Linda, listening on KPFK. Hey, Steve, what's up? You're talking about the economy, and I just took a look, and since about 2009, it looks like the S&P 500 has been growing roughly 11% per year. It hasn't had a, you know, it's had a couple of down things in there. But prior to that, I think the rate of the S&P 500 changed per year was closer to maybe 8 or 8.5%. You know, I doubt that saying- because it doubled. It more than doubled from 2008 till, till the end of the Obama administration. Uh, you don't, you don't get a doubling of anything at 8% a year over, over eight years. I don't well, think. that would have been around, I don't know. I, I, anyway, yeah. ever since around 2009 to well, uh, but what's to your, now, what's your point, about Steve? 1,000 to 3,000. My, my point is, it's not a bad investment, but you don't want to put all your money in there because sure. every five, four to seven years, it has a, you know, a downdraft and then comes back up right. again. Well, uh, yes and, and no. I mean, and, if, you're, if you're in your 30s, 20s, 30s, 40s even, uh, maybe even your early 50s, I would say, you know, putting money in the stock market is a really good deal. It's a really good investment, regardless of where the market is and regardless of where you are in the cycle. Eventually, you're going to make it up. On the other hand, if you're in your 60s right now, it's probably a really good time to get out of the market, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, certainly not have most of your assets in there. You yeah. Know, I've, yeah. Uh, and I guess as a follow on, I'd say, you know, a couple of different things about the politics we're in right now. Uh, probably candidates shouldn't be using that S word as in socialism. They shouldn't be using the P word as in progressive because that scares a whole bunch of Republicans that are might be moderates out there. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, I'm not I'm not so think, concerned about the, the, the progressive word. I mean, that you even have an insurance company that calls itself that it's not I, I, that, <laughs> you know, that hasn't been quite as demonized. But socialist, yes. And the main reason why is because for anybody over 50, basically the word socialist evokes the images of the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, rather than, you know, Eugene Debs. And, uh, you know, people just don't understand the history of it. And, and, uh, you know, I get it that Bernie's always called himself a democratic socialist. I'm guessing that if Bernie, when he was 18 years old, started talking like this, knew that someday he'd run for president, he might have changed his his language slightly, but who knows? I mean, you know, he's he has he has kind of single handedly rehabilitated that word, uh, although he's always been careful to say. I mean, he was in the show every year, every week, uh, every Friday for 11 years. Um, uh, he was always careful to say that he was a democratic socialist, not a socialist. And so, you know. 
Yeah, you know, the one thing I would put in here that we might think about, Mm -hmm. what we call ourselves progressives or liberals or whatever, is to start talking about what I call responsible capitalism. Yes. Responsible, because the Republicans and conservatives love that word responsible. You're absolutely right. a good word. Yeah. And so maybe that's what we need to be thinking about, talking about with respect to capital. Well, that's, that's in essence how, how, how Elizabeth Warren is defining all this. I mean, she calls herself a capitalist. And, uh, you know, frankly, I don't think she's a capitalist. I think she, you know, she believes in capitalism. But, you know, she's using the popular language and she's calling herself a capitalist and saying that she wants responsible capitalism. She wants capitalism that works for everybody, not just for the top 1%. So I, I think that she's going down the road that you're talking about. And Bernie does to a large extent. It's just that that socialist label keeps following him around like, you know, toilet paper on his shoe. Steve, yeah, thanks for the call. Until last year, I'd never endorsed a weight loss product, but I decided to change that because after reading about university research into a molecule in olive oil that regulates appetite, my wife convinced me that there was one that was worth sharing. Well, a year later, I'd have to say she was right. Louise said once her appetite and cravings were under control, losing weight was easy and she's kept it off. I've also heard from listeners that it worked for them. The fact that the only ingredient in Riduzone occurs naturally in the body and is completely non-stimulant has appealed to folks as well. And now even my producer, Sean, is trying this out. Listen, if you're looking to try to lose weight this season, I strongly suggest you give non-prescription Riduzone a try. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and get up to 65% off plus free shipping. You heard that right, 65% off plus free shipping. Go to riduzone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. R-I-D-U-Zone.com. Riduzone.com. Use the promo code TOM for your 65% off plus free shipping. Pam in uh, Chicago, listen to WCPT. Hey, Pam, what's up? Hi, Tom. How are you? I am great, but I'll get better, Pam. It's time for us to go left. And maybe that should be part of the Democratic. It's time to go left. What a novel idea that we can have a president who doesn't take money or isn't obligated to the corporate structure. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't that be wonderful? So I just wanted to ask Tom, what is the best way to get the message out of the Democratic Party, particularly Bernie, as well as Elizabeth Warren? I mean, Kamala Harris, all of them who want to go maybe left. But the regular, you know, media won't really cover or will distort their messages. Mm-hmm. So what is the best way for them to get their message out to those who still watch the regular network TV right. news? The way to do it is to talk about the specific issues, but talk about them using the language of values. In other words, say, yes, I'm in favor of Medicare for all. That's the policy. Because... Healthcare should be a human right in the United States like it is in every other developed country. That's the value, right? Yes, I'm, I'm in favor of everybody, uh, everybody being able to vote and, and opposed to the voting suppression efforts of the Republican Party. That's the policy because voting should be a sacred right in a democracy. It's the core of a democracy. That's the value. Um, uh, you know, I'm in favor of the banks being aggressively regulated and, and big corporations being aggressively regulated. That's the policy because capitalism really should work for everybody. It should work for working people as much as it works for the wealthy people. That's the value. Um, 
Am I making sense here, Pam? I wish they would say that, Tom. I, I really do, because everybody is not envious of wealthy people. Some people just want to have a car or home and send their children to school and yeah. get a, a decent education. You're absolutely so right, Pam. I, I, I wish they would push that message. Uh, here in Illinois, uh, we thought our Senate seats were safe, but I know I don't have time to go into detail. I'm a little bit concerned, Tom, about uh, Senator Durbin's seat. And I'm seeing some really? things going on politically. Yes. Dick, Dick, Dick Durbin is um, really popular. What what uh, you see a Republican well, uh, offering a serious challenge? Well, I, I think there could be a split because there is a candidate now coming into the race who uh, garners a lot of uh, goodwill and actually votes among the black community. Tom on the Republican so, side or in a primary? Well, here's the uh, in a in a. Well, in a primary, and he perhaps will be running as an independent Democrat. Oh, my. And he may go independent. He has a lot of money. Who and, is this? Uh, so I, I'm just concerned about a, a split vote. Right. And, and Durbin has some work to do in the black community. Don't get me wrong. So I'm not saying that he's been all great. Yeah. But I'm just saying that, you know, the Democratic Party needs to be careful Who about that. Who is that, that candidate you're concerned about, Pam? Uh, uh, Reverend uh, Willie Wilson. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. huh. He's a wealthy businessman, and he and trust me, Tom, he's been on the forefront of some issues, really important issues to the black community. So I don't right. want to disparage him. Yeah. However, he did vote for Trump. That's problematic for me. Whoa. Yeah. That's, prob that's problematic, period. Pam, thanks. I didn't know about that. Of course, I don't live in Illinois, so I'm not as tuned into your politics as you are, but thank you very much, you know, for the heads up on that. It's fascinating stuff. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Lynn in El Segundo, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Lynn, what's up? On socialism, I like Mike Ravel's response. He asked the question, what socialism? Republican socialism, which is for wealthy individuals and corporations and the military-industrial complex, which hurts everyday people, or democratic socialism, which benefits with public education and health. That is brilliant. I'm, I'm going to have to steal that. With regard to a mixed ticket, I think that it's probably uh, going to be absolutely necessary no matter who is the nominee, because the nominee is either going to be a, quote, centrist, you know, somebody who takes corporate money, or a progressive, somebody who doesn't. And um, th th this was the big mistake that Hillary Clinton made, in my opinion, and the mistake that John Kennedy didn't make. Now, the issues were different back in 1960 when Kennedy was running. It was, it was regional rather than ideological. But John Kennedy was a Northeastern liberal, and he put a Southern conservative, Lyndon Johnson, on the ticket. They hated each other. They, you know, they were both in the Senate, and they you know, basically didn't even talk to each other. But uh, Kennedy knew that Lyndon Johnson would balance the ticket and would get him votes that he couldn't get, would reach out to people he couldn't reach out to. So if Joe Biden, and, and, and this is why when Hillary Clinton won the nomination, I came on the air and said, please pick a solid progressive. It doesn't, you know, if it was Bernie, there's no doubt in my mind she would have easily beat Trump. But even if it wasn't Bernie, if it had been a solid progressive that Hillary had picked, that would have brought out young people, that would have been brought out climate activists, that would have brought out older people, boomers who are concerned about the fate and future of Social Security, um, the issues where Hillary was very, very weak. But instead, she picked Tim Kaine, who was another corporate Democrat, another you know, so-called centrist. And, and that was the point at which a lot of the Democratic electorate said, eh, screw it. 
You know, I mean, why should I? Why should I be fighting for this? And and uh, you know, and I think that that's the reason why she's not in the White House right now. So if Elizabeth Warren gets the ticket, gets the nomination, or Bernie Sanders for that matter, my personal at this moment thought is that probably the strongest candidate to put on the ticket with them that would balance the ticket, it would balance it ideologically, it would balance it racially, would be Kamala Harris, maybe Cory Booker. But on the other hand, Joe Biden gets the nomination. If he fails to put a, a true progressive and Elizabeth Warren, uh, Bernie Sanders or some, I mean, there's other progressives out there in both the House and the Senate, uh, Sherrod Brown. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of them. If he fails to put a real progressive on the ticket, then I'm very concerned that it'll be simply a repeat of, you know, what we saw in uh, 2016. David in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hey, David, what's on your mind? Thanks for listening to AM 950. I was just wondering if you had read the New York Times article on opportunity zones a couple of a week and a half or so ago. I didn't. And if not, just just a summary of it was basically in the 2017 tax cut law they put in provisions that oh in, in yeah and these to, right to, to, to help to out invest, poor neighborhoods and, and these are being used by yeah. big developers to make themselves insanely these, rich. These are, yes, they yeah. and and the develop the poor developers are the Kushners, Anthony Scaramucci. All they right. now they have these huge hedge fund meetings conventions and parties to raise funds for these things. And I'm just wondering, Tom, um, I had a discussion with another progressive radio host who said, well, it's, you know, even though these people are taking the opportunity to maximize their investments, it's still a good thing. And I'm just wondering how you feel about that. Um, I think they need to recalibrate them. I'm I'm guessing that the law was written with these loopholes in it intentionally by people who were taking money from the banksters. And now that we see the consequences and it's obvious to everybody, they should go back and fix it. I mean, opportunity zones, well, it's, it's, in principle, and I'm it's not a double whammy. To, but, and it's a double whammy because they're taking the capital gains taxes away and making money off of those. In yeah, these you're absolutely things. right. You're absolutely right, David. Thanks a lot for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. There's a lot of these kind of laws that need to be rewritten, but instead what we've got is Donald Trump rewriting the clean water regulations to make our water more poisonous. Patsy in Yakima, Washington. Hey, Patsy, what's on your mind today? I just wanted to make a remark about the gentleman who had called who was a union member talking about losing health care. Well, what he was saying was that if uh, Medicare for All eliminates the need for workman's compensation, which is a very narrow kind of insurance that you know, provides insurance and, and, com- and other benefits to people who've been injured on the job, if that goes away, then employers uh, will not create a, uh, uh, they will create more dangerous workplaces. Back to you, Pat. Right, and I, and I think that you are looking at this as an employer who does the right thing. Right. There are employers who don't, who will not take care of their employees, who, um, you know, if it wasn't for our, we, I'm a union member also, I was, um, if it wasn't for our medical, I'm not sure how, what position my husband would have been when he got thrown off a ship hatch, mm-hmm. and we had to use our private insurance to cover all the medical until the case got taken care of. Right, but if you had Medicare for all, it would all be covered. Back when um, one of our kids, our oldest daughter, back when she was uh, 17 or 18, Louise and I decided we were going to get a car for her. And, you know, thank God we were in a position where we could afford to do that. And so I was looking around at used cars because we wanted to get a cheap car. And uh, the car rental companies sell cars that are just two years old. You know, they, they keep them for a year or two and then they sell them. And what we discovered was that the car rental companies' cars were a whole lot more beat up than 
other cars of the same age. And it wasn't just that they'd been driven more miles because they were continuously being rented. It was because people bought the insurance. And because they had the insurance, they didn't care if the car, you know, if they, if they went over a speed bump at 50 miles an hour or if they sideswiped a guardrail or whatever. They didn't care. They had the insurance. So I think you could build just as strong a case that right now, because employers have workman's comp, because they're required by law to have workman's comp, that, they're less, that they care a little less about their workplace because they know they've got a safety net. Well, but at the same time, once that workman's comp is done, they controvert the case, and then you're, you're relying on whatever you can get. What does that mean? There, I, I don't know. Um, well, when, when I was on the job, I saw a lot of people who shouldn't have been on the job and, uh, because they, weren't, they, they were forced to go back to work because they could afford not to oh, go. Oh, because their workman's comp expired, you mean? Right, and as soon as the workman's comp expired, then, you know, the only thing they had for us in our union was that at least our, our medical was getting paid. Right, right. But in a Medicare uh, for All that, environment, yeah. if, if you are still in need of medical services, you get them as long as you need them. I mean, the, the, other, the other thing that you're bringing up, Patsy, is the fact that, you know, most jobs don't pay enough. And, and uh, you know, the, the economy has been restructured since the 1980s to perpetuate that. And that's, you know, that's clearly not a good thing that we need to do something about. But I don't see what that has to do with workman's comp. Uh, well, I guess because we had workman's, uh, we had workman's comp and um, we had the coverage while we were waiting for the workman's comp to get settled. I, right. I, and I guess I didn't, I wasn't sure if that would get covered. Oh, it would. Under Medicare for All, if you're sick, you go to the doctor, period. You know, it's just, it's real easy. I mean, it's very straightforward stuff. Patty, I gotta run. We're, okay. we're, here's, here comes the music, but um, maybe Thank I'm you. missing something here, and maybe somebody else will call up and correct and maybe, me. Yeah, maybe I am not explaining it properly. Yeah, yeah. It, may, yeah. It, it may well be. I, I and you know, hopefully, I can figure this all out. Patsy, thank you for the call. I appreciate it, and and a, a very considerate call as well. Elizabeth Warren has proposed expanding Social Security. By the way, seventy to seventeen percent. When you do the polling on this, should Social Security be expanded? Should we increase the amount that Social Security pays to people? 70% of Americans, including a majority of Republicans, a majority of independents, and obviously a majority of Democrats, 70% of Americans say, yes, you should expand Social Security. This is a no-brainer. Elizabeth Warren has rolled this out. Let's give everybody a two, on Social Security a $200 raise tomorrow morning and pay for it by hitting people who earn over, uh, uh, over a quarter million dollars a year with the same Social Security tax, or a slightly higher Social Security tax, actually, that all the rest of us pay. Let's just do this. And uh, in fact, this is, this is what Elizabeth Warren said. She said, when Republicans, uh, politicians, discuss the program, Social Security, it's mostly to debate about whether or not to cut benefits by a lot or a little. After signing a $1.5 trillion tax giveaway that primarily helped the rich and big corporations, Donald Trump twice proposed cutting billions from Social Security. And yes, that's true, although it largely was not reported by the media. This would reduce the senior poverty rate by 68% and lift an estimated 5 million seniors out of poverty if Elizabeth Warren's plan gets passed into law. Amazing stuff. Deborah in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Hey, Deborah, what's on your mind today? 
Oh, hi, Tom. Hey. Um, I just wanted to mention um, my situation, which um, goes along with what Elizabeth Warren is proposing, which would be so helpful to someone like me who is 67, still working on disability right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, not with my job, right. but my disability as far as my job is concerned. Once that is up, I will be out there to fend for myself making $14,000 a year. That's your Social Security and benefit? That would be my Social Security benefits. Right. And it's not like I've goofed off for, you know, 40 years. I, there's never been a day that I have not had a job mm-hmm. and have worked decent jobs. Right. Um, so I don't think it should be looked at like wel- welfare or socialism or anything like that. I mean, I know there's a lot more people out there like me yeah. that, once they get to that point, are not going to be able to afford to live. Yeah, I agree. And I, I was saying earlier, you know, Louise and I went down to the Social Security office last week or the week before last and signed up for Social Security. I mean, I had to do that a couple of years ago to get Medicare, but we finally thought, okay, let's go on Social Security. And I'm getting a lot of money from Social Security. In fact, it shocked me how much money Mm -hmm. I'm getting from Social Security. And it's because, you know, as the owner of of a bunch of businesses, and I made a lot of money when I was a lot younger, I have this history of a high income. So I'm right at the top at the Social Security income, whereas my mother-in-law is taking home less than $1,000 a year. And that's the fate, I think, of a lot of women, particularly women who have a divorce where their husband remarried and, and his new wife ends up you know, getting his Social Security benefits in those households where the husband was the breadwinner. It could reverse, obviously, in some cases. And I just think that's wrong. I, d- I don't think that we should be paying people's Social Security benefits based on their lifetime income. I think that it, people should get Social Security based on what it costs to live at a yes. minimum baseline. And that way, if you've got savings, then, you know, you can also, you know, take a cruise or, you know, whatever you want. But, you know, let's get let's get this minimum baseline under control so that people who are retired can actually live. It's crazy. That's so true. It just seems to me that it would give a boost to the economy as well. Yeah, it would. So that, you know, that would be a big help it would, to, a, to most people. Yes, because yeah. 100% of that money gets spent immediately for probably 90% of Social Security recipients. I, I mean, probably the Social Security money that Louise and I get is going to go right into a savings account. But, you know, because I'm still employed and I'm doing okay. But I just think that, you know, we should all have this safety so that people don't panic and freak out. I mean, 28% of seniors are living in poverty. That's crazy. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. So would you like to watch the Tom Hartman program? All three hours of our program, anytime you'd like. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. When you become a supporter of the program through Patreon, you have access to the full three-hour show anytime you want, and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out, Patreon.com, slash Tom Hartman. Thank you.